The fans along the beach, look at, look at the total package. Well, that's not funny. A serious athlete should not be covered with salsa, mustard, ketchup, sour cream. I agree that he should not, but I disagree. That's funny. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has uh, revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Nate, do you realize this is lucky number 13 for us? I can't think of a better episode to end the Kevin Sullivan era on. <laughs> I think that luck has many different connotations, Brian Mann. It's it's like time. It's like space up here on the satellite of hate. There's so many various definitions, and, and one man's good luck could be another man's curse, uh, and one man's bad luck could be somebody else's good fortune. So uh, we will see what the Taskmaster has in store for us uh, this week, brother. I, I agree. I mean, we're, we're finally here at the end. Is there, is there anything positive you kind of want to say as we look back on what Kevin Sullivan's done for us in a, the last month or so of, uh, of this programming? Because not, not only is he done... Uh, booking the show, he's kind of just done, period. Uh, they take him off the creative team completely at this point. So uh, Kevin Sullivan's fingerprints are going to be gone for a while. I mean, if anything, we'll always have that varsity club reunion. Uh, so I, I think, you know, we've got to tip our cap for that, you know, uh, Mike Rotunda. But that was Russo. So in, in a weird ah. way, Russo is actually responsible for more Kevin Sullivan airtime than Kevin Sullivan was. Uh, see, I was, I was going to go, you know, I respect you, Booker Man, but since uh, that's not... Kevin Sullivan's uh, creation, bringing back the Varsity Club in, in the year 2000. Uh, I, I guess the, the most positive thing would be uh, Sting came back uh, on his watch. <laughs> <laughs> take, take him where you can get him. But we're bringing in someone to help us wrap this all up. Our guest test subject this week, uh, he is a former WWE writer who has gone on to bigger and better things, I would say. He now has his own podcast and his own show on MTV. Andrew Goldstein is with us. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, let's celebrate the uh, end of the Kevin Sullivan era. Like many people when they come on the show, uh, you didn't sound very positive uh, when we first started talking to you. Sad face emoji, man. It's a very sad episode. If you're a wrestling fan and you grew up watching, uh, you know, the, and you know that WCW sort of was birthed out of the Crockett uh, it's very sad to know that that's sort of what the future was when I was watching in 87 and 88 and 89. Just a few, you know, a decade later, it would have devolved into a spring break gone horribly wrong. <laughs> and not only that, but this show is just peppered with foreshadowing uh, for a future that will be very bleak indeed. But you mentioned there that you 
watch the Crockett's uh, and whatnot. What what was your history with WCW and also in the year two thousand? Uh, were you watching wrestling? Were you watching WCW up until the end? What was your wrestling viewing habit uh, at the time this episode would have aired? It's a good question. Yeah, I started watching wrestling in '86. Uh, uh, I'm from Philadelphia, so I mostly got WWF programming, Superstars and Challenge, on Saturday mornings. But then on a different channel uh, in the early afternoon would be uh, NWA Worldwide, uh, mm. the Cro- you know, the Crockett's TV. And that product blew my mind as a, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old. Because mm. to me, that felt real. That felt like outlaws were invading this TV studio and, you know, just running roughshod on these pretty boys. Like, it w- it felt real, whereas... In the Saturday mornings, WWF Superstars and Challenge, like it, it was like an extension of cartoon Saturday morning. You know, you had larger than life characters. But Crockett, man, those were dudes that just got off of motorcycles in their jeans and their knee pads and and their breast knuckles and their chains, and they were Russian guys. Like it was crazy. So that's how I grew up watching wrestling. And then in two thousand, I was. Um, I was, I'm the class of 2000. That was my senior year in college. So I was not watching this, uh, religiously. Uh, I would catch a raw every now and again. You know, I look back and I regret that I went to school in Philadelphia in 96 to 2000. And I kind of just did not know about ECW, like that it was right down the road. And I could have been one of those degenerates that were going to those shows every week. How, how how frequently were you? Would you say you were watching? Was it every now and then, or was it just kind of completely out of your radar? I was watching an occasional Raw and an occasional Nitro, but certainly uh, I had never seen this episode. I heard certain stories and anecdotes about this era, so this was all news to me. This uh, a lot of what when what I witnessed the the, the two hours from three twenty seven two thousand. Well, speaking of news, before we jump into this episode of Nitro, let's go ahead and set the table and see what the news of the day was. The day before this episode aired, there was actually an election. Nate, you and I, we've been talking about Super Tuesday. We've been talking about these primaries. Do you know what election took place the day before this episode? I, I mean, judging by the uh, <laughs> judging by some of your tire on the show, I was going to say uh, Mean Gene Oakland as the uh, new governor of Florida. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> nope. Even worse than that, over in Russia, Vladimir Putin was elected to his first term oh, as Russian oh. president. How do you guys think that's going to work out for us in the long term? Uh, he won't have too much effect. <laughs> Seems like an all right dude. It, it, that is the equivalent of uh, an episode of Nitro being dedicated to uh, Vince Russo coming back. <laughs> yeah, I, what, you can't define foreshadowing better than a, what a disaster the show was uh, a day after Vladimir Putin is elected but the news that we were worried about in this country was what happened the day before this nitro which was actually the 2000 academy awards oh the oscar goes to american beauty american beauty is the one with the rose petals that's it yeah i don't remember much about it but i remember that oscars being like really this movie it didn't seem it didn't feel like an oscar winner to me um, as, as for me, like the next time I watch, uh, American beauty start to finish, it'll be the first time I watch <laughs> American beauty start to finish. Like I know enough to know, uh, 
that I can fake my way through conversations. You know, I don't know about the rose petals and the paper bag and Kevin Dam Spacey, but uh, it, it was not a movie that appealed to me, you know, just from the trailers and the previews. I was not champing at the bit to go out and see that movie back in uh, 2000. But you did see Next Friday in theaters. Of course. I mean, <laughs> if you see Friday, you what? have to see Next Friday. It's like you can't watch, uh, you know, A New Hope and not go see Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. That's an American classic. We're so used now to WWE just shoehorning in as many pop culture references as possible. It was almost a, like a breath of fresh air that this Nitro did not mention the Oscars occurred even one time. Yeah, uh, they were too busy uh, hitting us over the head every chance they got with uh, tough acting to acting commercials. <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's, let's go ahead and jump in and take a look at this episode of Nitro. It is spring break time at South Padre Island, South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley. Welcome World Championship Wrestling for Spring Breakout 2000. After four weeks of disengaged Ricky Rackman pre-tapes, it is now time for the penultimate spring break. First off the bat, I didn't realize this episode was in Texas. I assumed that every spring break was in Florida. I was I was still confused, obviously, as if, if anybody uh, caught my mean gene joke. Uh, <laughs> he was the mayor of Florida, even though we're in Texas. So, yeah, even while watching this, I was still under the assumption that we were in Florida, despite, uh, you know, the Keys and, and Tony Schiavone letting us know that we were in uh, South Padre. Like, I, I have never seen a... Uh, Texas as a place, like a spring break destination, like maybe Austin, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like the type of place where you would get all these uh, liquored up co-eds to go to. So uh, props for WCW finding this location because it, it probably was cheaper to uh, uh, shoot here than to shoot in Florida. I, um, when uh, one of my first, my first writing job in television was for a show called Boiling Points on MTV. And we did spring break in South Padre Island. We pranked uh, unsuspecting co-eds in like bathing suit dressing rooms and uh, poolside drink orders and all kinds of stuff. So if you remember Boiling Points, I did spend some time in South Padre Island, but uh, never uh, like what happened on the weekend of 327-2000. I I was most struck by um, the MC for the entire event. Again, liquored up teens. It's Mean Gene, who's probably like 70, <laughs> in a Hawaiian shirt and slacks as the MC. And uh, I was, I, it was the first time in my life I was begging for Carson Daly. Like, what? <laughs> that was uh, such a misread by, by the management of WCW. Like, when, why would they think that a 70 year old bald man in a Hawaiian shirt would be the person who could get the whip the crowd into a frenzy? Mean Gene warms up the crowd by engaging in some light sexual harassment of a woman in the very front row, pointing her out, saying how great her tits are. What a night it is here for Spring Breakout 2000. Young lady, you're very proud of those, aren't you? Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. You know, you're talking about being surprised that Mean Gene was the choice. If you watch any of the Nitros leading up to this, there's always, like every other Nitro, there seems to be some type of innuendo 
about Mean Gene's prowess at the nightclub or Mean Gene being some type of ladies' man or Mean Gene being able to sweet talk the pretty young things as it was. And so this this is right in, in his alley. Like this is the culmination of the Mean Gene C plot that we've been told for the past three months. It just shows you how in, you know, it's a term that's overused, but this is the definition of living in the bubble. Like in their wrestling bubble, Mean Gene is is like you know, uh, Justin Bieber, you know, because of his prowess in the nightclub. What sense does it make to have an octogenarian, you know, in the center of the ring in a, in a Tommy Bahama Hawaiian shirt? And just, I just don't under, like their hat. What was the median age of the people making the decisions? <laughs> I would say roughly around Mean Gene's age. I would say they were, uh, you know, to, th- to them he was the spry whippersnapper who was going to go get these kids in, uh, involved in the show. Okerlund then brings out a returning member of the roster, or at least he tries to. Uh, the ever-present WCW uh, production forces Gene to kill some time uh, for a minute or so. Eventually, Kimberly comes out in a very non-PG outfit. Uh, Gene says that he's been scouting beautiful beauties on the beach all week, but none of them compare to Kimberly. She then takes the mic from Gene, who makes no effort to hide. He's just staring at her ass, just flat out, any time her back is turned. His giant, giant boner just bursts through his <laughs> Kimberly then brings out the returning DDP. Gene plugs DDP's appearance on the Craig Claiborne show <laughs> and the upcoming Ready to Rumble. Mm. Paige says that he read a review that stated, Ready to Rumble has the muscle to make Janet Reno laugh. I, I sincerely doubt that was written anywhere. <laughs> DDP says that once the movie opens, he looks forward to his next role, being a three-time world champion. This brings out Jeff Jarrett, in jorts, to declare himself the only star around here. Jarrett says that he will crash the Ready to Rumble premiere at Man's Chinese Theater next week. DDP dares him to show his face at the premiere, and he will make him see stars. A uh, few thoughts. One, just from a uh, putting together TV uh, formatting angle, why you have Mean Gene out there, and then he's he's teasing this big new uh, he's uh, this big surprise, of, and he's leading the audience to believe it's DDP coming back. But he introduces Kimberly, who cuts a worse promo <laughs> to introduce DDP, like. They shot. They just they cut that surprise off at the knees by adding the step of having Kimberly come out to introduce DDP. Mm-hmm. Like if you're gonna have Mean Gene stand there for 20 minutes, at least let him do what he's good at, which is hyping, you know, the uh, returning wrestler. So that was a fail. And then Kimberly comes out. She looks great. The the sort of uh, the the sarong over the thong was a nice touch. Uh, could you couldn't get away with that today. And then D- all of DDP- DDP's promo was just canned lines. It was all just like scripted one, one-liners. It almost looked like he was looking off camera each time to get like Russo's approval. Each like, well, oh, we nailed that line. That was a good one. You can see the words on the paper is what, what I'm trying to say. Hmm. And then Jared comes out and he kicks off what I'm calling it, it, the, a big theme for this Nitro, what I'm calling – we're at peak denim shorts over the knee uh, <laughs> era of wrestling. With the we'll get to it, but the Harris brothers, you have Ooh. they're both in them. You have multiple uh, members of the roster wearing uh, tight biker short tight denim uh, <laughs> denim shorts. So and Jeff Jarrett's also wearing the yellow like uh, I'm at the gun range glasses. <laughs> 
like the blue blocker yellow uh, <laughs> weird uh, gun range glasses. Or like he's giving LASIK eye surgery backstage and then he'd mm. come out at his promo. <laughs> so th- those were my thoughts. I didn't find it to be very effective. I found it to be – and then I love how he promotes that Oliver Platt is the star. Like <laughs> He also made it sound like he's he's really good friends. Like always like – and you know we had to have Joey Pantaleone in there. <laughs> like like Joey was like calling up for a favor from DDP to get put into Ready to Rumble or something. Oh, yeah. And he, Scotty Khan, because they're best buds. My Scotty Khan's Scott. there. Oh. <laughs> so good. Oh, man. I, I, I tend to agree because I thought on the positive side, you know, we saw the, the energy and the reaction and the response to DDP. But what was accomplished here? In in the long run, like other than butchering Craig Kilborn's name, which I, I found kind of offensive, because uh, that man is a national treasure. Uh, but I, I thought that bringing DDP out to start the show was a good idea. Uh, the execution though was a little bit lacking. Uh, and uh, that, that being said, though, I'm, I'm kind of con- contradicting myself now because kind of coming off of all those Hogan shows and Hogan being the guy to start these programs, I'm glad we didn't start with Gene and, and, and uh, the Hulkster. So at least it's something different, and uh, I wasn't subjected to Terry Balea right off the bat. Oh, no, no. Uh, Terry Balea was like, listen, I'm going to let the young DDP start the show off, but I'll get mine on the back half of this one. He's got a, he's got a fresh new airbrushed leather blazer. Let's get him. Let's let him get that out and let the audience see that right off the bat. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bang. We go to the announcer's desk where Tony runs down tonight's card, including Sting and Vampiro versus Team Package in a Texas Tornado tag match. But enough about tonight's card. Let's talk about what really matters. Television writers. Tony informs us that Brad Siegel has brought back Eric Bischoff to head up creative and that he wants to bring back Vince Russo as well. However, it is unclear whether or not Russo wants to come back, but Tony promises that he will have an answer tonight. We do understand during the course of this program... We will have Vince Russo's decision, yes or no, to come back to WCW and team with Eric Bischoff and head up creative, head up what you see on these programs each and every week, Mark. Bischoff and Russo, two massive geniuses, but two massive egos, too. Could they work together? I don't know. We don't even know if we'll get to find out. We don't know about Vince. Thankfully, the fans were able to provide the context for how ridiculous this segment was as boring chants broke out and fans directly behind tony held up signs that said wcw sucks and i wish i was at raw Mm. why did they go the extra mile of explaining this was all fake couldn't they have just said that they're coming in to run things i mean both of these guys had been on-screen characters did we need did the viewers at home need to hear the term creative thrown around here I've, i've got two questions here brian man yeah number one when we're talking about this sign in the crowd was this something that the fan did beforehand, or was this something where this drunk fan created this sign and crafted the sign in the moment? Because if they crafted the sign in the moment, that's one thing. But if you create a derogatory WCW sign and then proceed to go to the WCW show to hold up your derogatory WCW sign, what does that say about you, sir? I don't think the opening segment was so bad that someone crafted paper and Sharpies out of nowhere to create a sign about how show the, how bad the show was. But I do think it's – I think it's completely uh, expected that – I mean, WWF is very hot at this time period. You're going to do a non-paying event for drunk college kids. I'm not at all surprised that some 
people showed up to troll live on the air behind Tony Schiavone. <laughs> that okay, didn't surprise I, me at all. I, I can buy that. I can buy that. Uh, but my other point, though, is in terms of the Bischoff and Russo thing, I think there was a way for them to do it without going that extra step. You know, like you said, the, these are two characters we've seen on this program before. We know they have authority. You know, you can talk about Brad Siegel and the board of directors and in a perfect world, Commissioner Arn Anderson. And there's a way to say this exact same thing and get the exact same hype going without taking that next step of, well, this is exactly what their job's going to be. And they spoke to Brenda down in HR and the paperwork's all gone through and uh, they're going to have separate but equal positions and, and stuff like that. So I think... What's what's the old saying? Yeah, too too clever by half. Yeah, trying to get too cute with it, trying to be so inside that you end up alienating your viewers. I think that's the trap that they fell into multiple times, but particularly when you talk about you know the reboot with Russo and Bischoff. We are then shown footage of Hulk Hogan at a Tower Records promoting Spring Stampede, which is a very two thousand sentence to say. After signing autographs, Hogan and Jimmy Hart then visited the Man Cow radio show where Jimmy Hart mm. eventually attacked the shock jock. Man Cow's a huge radio star, but he's not going to get away with trashing Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart got all over him, Tony. This was, of course, the era of celebrity shock jocks where actually <laughs> being on the radio meant you could have a career, which is not the case in 2017. Do either of you guys remember Man Cow? I was too young to be uh. listening to like drive time radio, so none of these guys ever registered on my radar. I only ever heard of Man Cow in the context of Hulk Hogan. Mm. The same with Bubba the Love Sponge. I never knew that that dude was a, a, a an entity besides in the context of Hulk Hogan. <laughs> uh, I had to learn the hard way uh, because one of my favorite things to listen to, and some of the listeners know, uh, you know, my passion for all things sports and. I like to listen to, you know, whether it be ESPN Sports on the radio or uh, Fox Sports and hear what those kind of pundits and talking heads are are throwing out there in the atmosphere. And, uh, you know, it, it helps me form some of my own opinions and, and uh, you know, gives me food for thought. And so I tend to, you know, either go to sleep listening to R&B or sports talk. Um, and I forget what year it was, but there was a format change overnight. And so it went from this sports talk format to an all talk format, particularly p political talk. And so I guess they didn't want to get so political in the morning. They wanted to kind of ease the listeners into this all talk format. And so instead of waking up to Jim Rome or Dan Patrick, uh, these are sports guys, Brian, man, uh, <laughs> I woke up to the lovely sounds of man, cow, Muller in the morning. And I'm like, who is this? Random Howard Stern-esque, but not nearly as good yeah. guy talking. And, and yeah, he seemed very abrasive, very much in that shock jock mold. And, and I, I just remember he had like a black dude that was like Al Roker Jr. And some Hispanic chick that was like Latin Spice or something. And it's like like the the he had his own like Howard Stern group, but they were not as good as the Howard Stern group. Uh, and so it's like, yeah, I, I listened to Man Cow for about two days, maybe three days to, you know, give him a shot. And, uh, that, uh, that was not, uh, a, a show that resonated with me. So that was the last time I listened to one man, Kyle Muller. Three random jobbers are backstage talking. Now, one of these guys, the guy in the middle was Mike Modest. Did either of you guys recognize who the other two guys were at all? I, okay. I just need to say Mike Modest 
I immediately thought it was Kevin Sullivan. He looked <laughs> like Kevin Sullivan, and then they, and then they told me it was Mike Modest. But I did not know who that was. Uh, I uh, I didn't know who he was back then, and I vaguely knew that he was somebody uh, when I saw him appear uh, when I watched it this week. Yeah, I didn't know who the other two guys were either. Well, they are approached by Paisley and the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. Paisley says that one of these nobodies will get a cruiserweight title shot tonight. She then chooses Mike Modest for the match. Earlier today, Scott Steiner is shown flirting with the NWO biddies at the pool. Hey, I'm going to the beach today. Uh, yes, trim it. Trim it a briscoe. Oh, my God. Briscoe. Briscoe. Scotty, come on. Let's, no. let's go to the beach. You don't know, bro. I'm seeing a little, uh, little freestyle, man. Let's go. Come on, Heavy D. Let's go to the beach. <laughs> Not much to report here, but uh, it does allow us to celebrate the fact that this is the final Nitro at the NWO 2008. We can, we can salute their flag, and we can, mm. we can bury this group. This is the last time we have to talk about this stable. Uh, so, so what you're really saying is at the end of this program, uh, much like the Oscars, which happened two nights before in 2000, we'll have to do like the In, Mem- in Memoriam segment mm-hmm. and, and play uh, Sarah McLaughlin, I Will Remember You, and slow motion scenes of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and April Hunter and Tylene Buck. Again, feelings of sadness, like such an amazing angle when it started and for it to have led to uh, what it became in 2000, just to put the words, the letters NWL on a, on sacks of shit is it. It's so sad. It's really, you know, it's the horsemen all over again. It's like, they didn't learn their lesson. They, they, they learn nothing from missteps in the past of, you know, strike while the iron's hot and then move on. Yeah. And this was uh reforming the NWO was Russo's original big idea. Um, oh, genius, genius. Mm. And, and funny enough, uh, this kind of plays into uh, where we're headed. Russo originally wanted to keep the NWO around after the reboot happened, but he talked about it on WCW live and thus ruined the surprise. So they dropped it. Um, uh, after this mean gene interviews booker about his match tonight against one of the harris twins this was originally meant to be a tag title rematch for booker and billy kidman but one of the harris brothers is claiming his arm is injured booker then guarantees to take the harrises from pillar to post back out in the ring mike modest waits as taff cappy makes his entrance it's worth noting that madden states that this is for the cruiserweight championship at the beginning of the match Chris Candino's music then plays, but it's quickly cut off, and Tony attempts to cover for this production fuck-up. <laughs> um, you know, I could give you guys a blow-by-blow account of this match, but what's the point? Because the announcers couldn't even fake interest in this match, instead conducting a shoot interview on commentary about Russo and Bischoff. Vince Russo and the success he had at the World Wrestling Federation when he was in charge of creative up there was ultimately responsible for turning them around and perhaps even the downfall of Eric Bischoff here in WCW. To make matters even more confusing, Tony says that Chavo has come to ringside, but we don't see him. What we do mm-hmm. see is Chris Candido walking down the aisle, so this match is now overflowing with distractions and interference. As if that wasn't enough, Shivani then announces that Sid is not at Nitro this week, but he has placed a $500,000 bounty on Hulk Hogan. You know, just in passing, here's the setup for our main event program. The artists and Modest are actually still wrestling, but instead of paying attention to that, we go to Chavo and Paisley, who are arguing on the floor. Paisley then slaps Chavo. Paisley gets on the apron, and Chavo follows. So now the two of them are literally blocking the hard camera for being able to see the match. 
On commentary, Madden acknowledges that maybe they aren't paying full attention to the match. The artist punches Chavo, sending him to the floor, where Chris Candino then starts to beat on Guerrero. Modest rolls up the artist, but the camera doesn't show it. What the camera does show is the artist accidentally knocking Paisley off the apron and onto Chris and Chavo. This distraction allows Modest to hit his finish on the artist. The announcers then hastily mention that this isn't for the title as Modest gets the surprise pinfall. <laughs> and Mark Madden's like, he doesn't even have a name for his finisher. <laughs> Top to bottom, this this might have been the worst segment, Nate, since that tag team title like free-for-all that uh, that we got on like the third episode. This was absolute shit, and it it was impossible to follow the narrative here because not only was it a confusing segment, but the announcers weren't even doing the work of explaining what was happening on screen. I don't think they knew what they were watching. Yeah, and, and this was actually something that I was excited about when, when I saw Mike Modest because, you know, back in 2000, I was very much, you know, kind of a, a sponge for other forms of wrestling. You know, I did not just WCW and WWF. You know, I was looking at, you know, random federations all around the country, all over the world, as Dusty Rhodes would say. And uh, one of the promotions I ended up stumbling onto was APW out in California. And you had guys like Modest and and, and, uh, Tony Jones and Donovan Morgan and Christopher Daniels and a young, young AJ Styles. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be great because Prince Ikea, we all know he is another national treasure. I I love me some Tab Caffey. Taff Cappy, so I thought that this was going to be, you know, a really cool opener, and it should have been a really cool opener had they given the guys time and not overbooked it, but there was so much they were trying to accomplish in this, and knowing now what we know would happen the, the following few weeks, I wonder why we needed to get all of this stuff in. It felt like they were trying to rush us to a mid-season finale when they didn't even know how they were going to pick things back up after the break, so I thought this yeah. show should have been, in in hindsight, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think this show, in hindsight, should have been like the show the next year from uh, Panama City. Yeah. Where we don't really start or build up to these big things that we don't know if we're going to have a chance to finish and pay off. But instead, let's just give people like some really interesting matchups, some cool nostalgia, and whatever happens next week or the week after that, we'll, we'll get to that when it comes. Yeah, a few things. Uh, first off, I'd never support any wrestler that's wrestling in like slacks and a and a, a, a <laughs> Seinfeld pirate shirt. So, but uh-huh. I do respect Prince Ike had talent, and again, I'm left with a feeling of sadness because look at the talent. Obviously, completely haphazardly used, but look mm-hmm. at the talent that's just ringside at this match. You have Chavo, you have Chris Candido, and you have Prince Ike and Mike Modest. I don't know that much about him, but he seemed pretty pretty technically proficient in the ring. Take those four guys and book it like a regular, you know, book it with some amount of, of uh, intelligence, and you could have had a pretty good segment there. Not to mention, we're like 40 minutes into the show already, and this is your first match. Mm. Another segment, another Mean Gene interview with the Harris brothers. The injured Harris says he threw out his shoulder fucking Madeja after Thunder. We are then shown footage from the day's spring breakout. <laughs> are you sure he didn't throw out his shoulder trying to get those denim shorts on over his quads? <laughs> My goodness. Continue. 
We are then shown footage from the day's spring breakout, and uh, I hate to say it, guys, this looked like a lot of fun. Uh, if I had been of spring break age, I would have definitely been making plans to go to the next one. Uh, there were dance contests and Scott Steiner choking fans and a dog wearing a sombrero. This looked like a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not even going to – I could joke about how cheesy it was, and there's more segments later we can do that. But just initial view of what this day's events were, this seemed like a great time. That I, I, if, WC, if WWE did something similar to this, I would totally go. It's like WrestleMania access. But free. <laughs> you, you don't pay anything, and everyone's drunk. Everything. Yeah, everyone's drunk. <laughs> and I, 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 I try to tell them every week, Andrew, like, when, whenever we get these segments with Ricky Rackman or the, uh, the Three Count or, or uh, the Nitro Girls, and they're out at some campus or at some college event, and in 2017, with, with these new eyes, of course, it looks a little dated. It looks a little cheesy. But if if you're talking about me back in 2000 and somebody invited me to one of these events, particularly this spring break event, come okay. on, man. I'm there. Any chance to see Mean Gene uh, hanging out with kids? <laughs> come on. Sign me I up. Don't- like, Mean Gene was probably, like, the mayor of these events because as a wrestling fan, I know I totally would have bought Mean Gene a shot. Oh, yeah, and he would have accepted it. <laughs> Hulk Hogan arrives at the hotel with Jimmy Hart. It's worth uh, pointing out, though, that Hogan kind of got a mixed reaction here on his first appearance. Vampiro emerges from a doorway and beckons Hogan to join him. The announcers speculate that Vampiro might be trying to cash in on the bounty. With Booker T in the ring, the Harrises enter... In matching fucking jorts and white gym shoes. They're wearing like the Kyrie, uh, or no, the uh, Steph Curry's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, with, they bought the two dudes, bald heads, goatee, denim shorts, and, you know, like a branded wrestling t-shirt. They look like Steve Austin. They, yes. they look like they're two dudes trying to be Steve Austin, which shows you like, just WWE's way of presenting the same thing was a million times better than WCW's way of presenting basically the same thing. Yes, that, that was my thought when I when I saw their attire. It was like they're first of all, they're terrible anyway, because they're the Harris brothers. But uh I was like, wow, they've gone from the Nashville World Order to cosplaying as uh Steve Austin on this spring break nitro. Booker and uh, whichever Harris is wrestling start off by brawling. That Harris goes to clothesline Booker over the top, and he just he barely grazes the top of Booker's head, and Booker still takes the bump. So, guys, that's another gift request at home. The other Harris rolls Booker back inside, where the wrestling Harris rips him, whips him into the ropes. Booker ducks and lays uh, that guy out. Booker follows up with a spine buster that knocks the other Harris off the apron. Booker hits an axe kick, a scissor kick, and a spinneroonie, which brings Jared out with the guitar. This distracts the ref, allowing the Harris twins to H-bomb Booker. The, the injury was a ruse, guys. He wasn't actually hurt. He maybe never even fucked Medeja. Who knows? Booker then gets pinned by one of the two skinheads. After the match, Houston Heat 2000 runs down. Apparently remembering their feud with Booker never really had a blow-off. Stevie and a camo-clad Big T beat down Booker until he dropkicks both men. Big T, though, didn't get much time to embarrass himself because that role is now reserved for Big Cash. Cash struggles to fit through the ropes. He finally does and slams Booker. Kidman then runs down to help, but he gets laid out as well. Uh, Booker, though, to wrap up the segment, takes a page from Terry Funk's playbook, 
grabbing an office chair at ringside to scare off Harlem Heat. Um, not much to be said here. It's, uh, it's again, like, it feels like every segment where, like, they just take things one step too far. Uh, are Booker and Kidman still feuding with the NWO, or are we moving them on to Harlem Heat? Uh, okay, I got a laundry list of things here. One, again, sadness. Booker T out here trying to be a, a proper professional wrestler in boots and tights. And uh, he's got a, and then everybody else that he's coming in contact with is just in uh, awful street clothes. So that always upsets me. I didn't know about this Houston Heat situation. The third guy who couldn't <laughs> take through the ropes, did he ever do anything before or after this? Is there any like <laughs> wrestling context to this guy? I didn't know who he was. I recognized Ahmed Johnson. Yep. Barely recognizing Ahmed, Ahmed Johnson. Uh, Nate, do you want to uh, fill uh, Andrew in on who, uh, uh, on who Cash is? Oh, uh, it would be my honor uh, to, to enlighten the brother because uh, – Cash, you know, while he was new to this uh, new formation of Harlem Heat, uh, he was no stranger to the ring, Andrew. You might recognize him from his time as a member of the No Limit Soldiers. He was four by four in that group, uh, along with such luminaries as Master P, Brad Armstrong, and of course, Big Swole. And uh, the listeners already know this because we've already discussed it, but Andrew, how much money do you think Big, uh, how much money do you think Cash was making here? This this guy, what was the contract that WCW signed this guy to who only ever had six matches total in his two years with the company? Well, if he was part of that No Limit Soldiers angle, he must have been getting seven figures. This right? guy, not seven, but he was making $400,000. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's just outrageous. I mean, it's outrageous. They're, pay- they're paying this dude cash $400,000 and the audience did not pay to go to that event. They had no <laughs> revenue stream. They had zero revenue stream except for maybe a TV contract, right? I mean, yeah, but at the same time, like, they're also owned by the, ta- the cable company that they're on. So right. that's not really a net positive for them in, in, in the scheme of things. It's just, I mean, it's insane. It's really insane. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Yeah, it was just, again, it's every match, whether it ends in a finish or not, ends up with 16 guys in the ring, which, again, that's why TNA for so long had issues. There were no clean finishes ever. Mm. Backstage, Vampiro infer- Backstage, Vampiro informs Hogan about Sid's bounty. Vamp says the offer makes him sick, so he's got Hogan's back. You know, it sounds like I'm for a long night, Jimmy. 500 grand. I got 500 grand that says Sid won't even show his face. But thank you, my friend. All right. You take care. Good luck. Watch your back. All right. For the second time in 30 minutes, Mean Gene is standing in the ring waiting to interview a coworker. That coworker in question this time is Hulk Hogan. The Hulkster starts by implying that Jimmy Hart is getting a rub and tug from some coworkers backstage. (laughs) I was looking over the balcony in my hotel room waiting for Jimmy Hart to come out here and get me for my interview. But there were about three or four ladies in itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka-dot bikinis massaging Jimmy Hart down, taking care of his neck, and making sure that he wasn't crinkled up from big, nasty Sid Vicious last week. So everybody out there, Jimmy Hart is going to be okay because all these spring break nurses are taking real good care of him, brother. Hogan offers to pay Sid $500,000 to come out and wrestle him all night long. 
Behind the Hulkster, a fan holds up a sign that says, Hogan, please retire. Hogan then calls Vamp the wrestler of the future, meaning he's probably going to bury him soon. The Wall's music then plays, and where is the big man? Does he come down the aisle? Is he attacking from behind? No. The Wall is 200 feet away and 15 stories in the air on top of a building overlooking the ring. Despite this extreme distance... Hogan has no problem identifying the monster. <laughs> These two men are aggressively communicating, despite the fact that neither one is physically able to understand the other one. How small and insignificant did Hulk Hogan seem with WCW's presentation at this time in this time period as compared to every single time he appeared on any kind of WWE TV? I mean, it's just it's a masterclass on one side, and it's like, uh, you know, it's a, a learning annex class on the other side. Like, Hulk Hogan just seems like any other guy. Like, re- he's wrestling on the crossover segment, you know, from hour one to hour two. Or he's he's appearing in the ring on the crossover segment, and he's cutting a, a promo that has no direction, that's just draying on and on and on. And then, like you said, the wall is, you know, he's like four hotel resorts away. Well, this is also a time period where everyone knew it, but Hogan wouldn't admit it, that he probably shouldn't be a weekly television character anymore. So yeah. this era of Hogan, bleeding over a little bit to his time in WWE uh, uh, in 2002, this feels like uh, this feels kind of like Hunter in 2010, where you kind of understand that, like, eh, this guy doesn't need to be on TV each week and, like, presenting him on TV each week. Like, he's just having these meaningless feuds with, like, Sheamus and stuff and, and legacy. It's maybe time to, to move him to a part-time thing, make it a big deal whenever he comes out, have him only wrestle a couple times a year. They haven't quite made that decision with Hogan because Hogan obviously is booking himself here. So they're so he's just coming out, and due to the fact that he's seen so frequently, it ultimately means nothing. You're right. He just seems like any other guy on the show. And when he is, without a doubt, a lower performer than most of the other guys on the show at this point, you're not getting your, your Hulk Hogan money. Uh, you're not getting your money's worth with them. I'll give the booking committee some credit here. Uh, I will say on paper, they were doing the right thing, though they executed it incorrectly, which is young, big man, uh, let's put him in the ring with Hogan, give him the rub, maybe have Hogan put him over. That's basically what you're supposed to do with your legendary veterans. So, uh, you know, philosophically, they were doing the right thing in schedule in booking the program of the Wall versus Hulk Hogan. Yet another Hogan heel, big man, monster, you know, unstoppable force. Hogan has to, you know, uh, get in the ring with this guy, and hopefully he would, you know, perhaps he would have put him over. But like, just the execution of it was just so jabroni. <laughs> I just love the fact that this is, as crazy as this segment was, this is only the second most ridiculous segment involving Hulk Hogan yeah. and a rooftop feud in WCW. <laughs> like, yeah, no one fell off. The, no one fell off this building. Right, nobody was injured. No walls were harmed in the making of this production. But yes, again, we go from the Yappa Pie strap match, which was obviously legendary, to this Hogan and Sid feud, and now we're already, you know, beginning like this mini aside quest with uh the wall and Hogan, and I was not excited for any of this, Brian Man. Like none of this uh makes me more interested in Hulk Hogan. None of this makes me more interested in the wall. So to uh Andrew's point, like I get what they were trying to do, but like the wall's not the guy. Like the wall is not 
who the who should be you know your focus for the next uh, generation of stars? I guess the wall looks like the dude from This Is Us. <laughs> Which guy? The fat the the, the fat guy. <laughs> Lori met what's her name's uh, husband. Looks <laughs> like that dude. Oh. Uh. I'll take your word for it. I've not watched any of This Is Us. Google it, and you'll see. He looks exactly like the dude from This Is Us. With Mean Gene preoccupied, Mike Tanay interviews the Mamelukes along with Disco Inferno. Tanay informs us that the Mamelukes will face the Young Dragons in a six-man tag tonight. Vito is still pissed at Disco for not getting them a tag title rematch against the Fugazi Harris Boys. Elsewhere, the Harris Boys watch the interview and get upset because they don't know what the term Fugazi means. I need to just tell you guys that I worked heavily with uh, Vito uh, in WWE. During his man uh, in a dress thing? Yeah, the toughest yeah. God damn it. He's the toughest guy to ever wear a dress. <laughs> Don't we need to explain, like, why he's wearing a dress? No. He's the toughest man to ever wear a dress. <laughs> uh, and I went to Gleason's gym in Brooklyn with Court Bauer. We shot vignettes all day with him working the heavy bag and and uh, the speed bag and doing sit ups in the ring, all in a dress and heels. And my credit to Vito, he he lived the gimmick, man. He got an uh, uh, he got the orders from the office, and he really old school lived the gimmick. He went through the airport with a coach bag and heels and a dress, <laughs> and he walked out in public as a professional wrestler in a dress. And uh, we kept trying to sway Vince on, can we just say, like, the reason he's doing it is because he can? Like, I'm so tough that I, I'm so tough I can wear a dress and nobody can tell me not to because otherwise I'll crack them in the teeth. And he wouldn't let us give, like, that one little nugget of exposition because in mm. his head it was obvious. God damn, he's the toughest man to ever wear a dress. And then the other funny Vito story <laughs> – is that for the premiere of SmackDown in 2006, this was a big deal. The premiere, the SmackDown moved, switched channels, and for the premiere, we had like this gigantic, huge event booked, and then we took it to Vince the week before, and he said, and he threw out all of our long-term plans, and he booked Booker versus Veto as the main event. Oh. Because there's nothing more marketable than a man in a crown Versus a man in a dress. God. <laughs> that, that's what we're... And we... Like, Alex Greenfield's head... Like, he just started bleeding from the, the ears. <laughs> he really made us book Vito versus Booker on the premiere of SmackDown. Well, that's that's so interesting. You mentioned the stuff with the with the dress because I wasn't watching at that time period, and I knew I, I know about it. In, you know, retrospect, I was assumed that he lost a, a, a match or something at Fort... But no, he just showed up on TV with the dress one week. Yeah, it was a, an idea that was never explained or thought out to us. He just that was his gimmick, and we had to we had to book around it. And honestly, we were not allowed to explain mm. why this Italian strongman <laughs> was walking around in a dress and Gucci flats. But like I said, credit to Vito. I'll never say a bad word about that guy because he for a year, airports, restaurants. Fan access in the office. The guy wore heels and a dress. Anyway, those are my veto stories. <laughs> well, you can add another veto story to the pile because it is now time for his uh, six-man tag uh, with the Young Dragons. 
The Young Dragons enter the ring with three counts green discs, which they stole at Thunder. Now, before the Young Dragons can mock three count, Vito, Johnny the Bull, attack them from behind. That was my biggest disappointment. We didn't get to see the Young Dragons, you know, drop some moves. Well... To be uh, to to pull back the curtain a little bit, they did they did this on the actual Nitro, but it has been cut from the network because, as our listeners know, any use of the three count theme song has been cut from the network. So that's why we abruptly cut to them being attacked well, from behind. I will tell you that Jimmy went, Jimmy Yang was also on the roster on yep. SmackDown when I was there, and I was also very heavily in charge of uh, his storylines. You see, you see all the choice. Uh, <laughs> The choice stories I got to work on. I wrote all of his introductory Jimmy Yang Wang uh, series of vignettes that ended with, I'm your boy, giddy up. (laughs) And piece of trivia, the reason why it used to, it it originally was pitched to me as, I'm your boy, yee-haw. And I added giddy up because I was a huge Seinfeld fan. And I felt like, I felt like uh, Rhythm of Three would have worked well for, uh, I felt like it just needed something else, and I added Giddy Up because I was a huge Seinfeld fan, and I took it from Kramer. Yeah. But yeah, I worked uh, heavily with Jimmy Jimmy Yang. What about uh, uh, Jamie Noble? Did you work with him at all? Was he still I did, uh... but uh, when I when I got there, Jimmy no- uh, Jamie Noble was in the uh, Pitbulls with... Um, oh, with right. uh With uh, Kid Cash. Now, and then yeah. Kid Cash got injured or suspended, one of the two, and... God bless uh, Jamie Noble. He wanted that team to work so badly. The next week at TV, he showed up with a guy from developmental that looked like an, he just looked like any, like a concession worker. Like he was nothing special. And he put the pit bull tights on him and everything. And he tried to like get the office to, to like just book the, the pit bull, the pit bulls 2.0. Like, he he went down to developmental, grabs like a young talent, and said like Let's keep doing this." And they were like, "Uh, no." Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Jamie Noble's one of the like true like wrestling. Like he just loves, lives, breathes, and dies being in the professional wrestling business. I remember being on a flight with him, and I looked across the aisle, and he was just in his seat on a like uh, clamshell DVD player watching Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express matches. And I was just like, you know what? This guy lives it, and in his free time, he's choosing to watch, you know, the Midnights and the Rock and Roll. So uh, props to that dude. He loves, you know, he loves it. He's in it for the love of the game. And, uh, you know, it was cool to see Sir, uh, what was his, uh, Jamie Son. Mm -hmm. It was cool to see him in the Jamie Son persona. Was it ever thought that he should uh, should go back to the Jamie Son? No. You could could have a Young Dragons uh, reunion with him and uh, Jimmy. Under the same roster. God damn it. Can't see his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so Johnny, uh, so this match starts with Johnny and Vito just ragdolling the smaller guys. Kaz gets tagged in and he lands a missile drop kick to Vito. Now just when the crowd starts to get in this match, the announcers drop any interest in it to bring us the late breaking news that Vince Russo will be coming back. Vince Russo has agreed to come back on board. Vince Russo has said yes. Vince Russo will join Eric Bischoff at the helm of creative, of WCW's creative team. That is official. That's the wall. That is the single biggest bit of information, biggest news we've had in the entire year, maybe for the last couple of years, in World Championship Wrestling. What changed his mind? Did he see the Hogan segment and say, I could do no worse? 
Uh, Tony calls this the biggest piece of news for WCW in years, which would end up being true, but not for the reason they expected. This match uh, really should have just stopped because the announcers cannot be bothered to pay any attention at all. Tony and Madden are complaining about the management style of the new bosses. The Harrises interfere and attack the Mamelukes, but the announcers don't even mention them once. <laughs> Disco gets triple teamed by the Young Dragons. A combo splash and leg drop is hit off the top rope onto Disco for the three count. Afterwards, the Harris brothers lay everyone out. Nothing was accomplished in this segment. Um, even if the, the directive was we've got to get over this Russo and Bischoff thing, maybe just, just show me the announcers. Just let the announcers talk to the camera because this did no service. This, didn't, this wasn't good to anybody. Uh, you couldn't concentrate on either thing, so you just sort of left completely unaware. Yeah, wrestling took a backseat to um, poorly thought out uh, storyline and, and, uh, plot, uh, plot development. And, and the, the sad part is this, like you said, Brian, this was actually a really, uh, interesting match, probably much better than they had any right to be. Um, obviously we had the young dragons who week after week, I think need to get more love, uh, particularly Kaz Ayashi, who, as I've stated on this very program, for a brief period of time in the year 2000, maybe it was a week, maybe it was three weeks, but for a brief period, Kaz Ayashi was the best wrestler in the world. Uh, and I love me some Kaz Ayashi, and, and uh, I thought him and, and Jimmy and Jamie were a great pairing. Uh, and and I'm, to be fair to the Mamelukes, I was not mad at them on this episode, as I have been in the past. And it just stinks that, you know, we've got to add more ingredients to something that should be simple. You know, when we have the Harris boys come out, we have all this stuff on the commentary about Russo, and it it felt like you you want me to pay attention to this match because you booked it, but at the same time, you want me to pay attention to three other things, and because of that, none of what you want to get across is important becomes important because everything gets kind of bogged down by the weight of mediocrity, I think. Yeah. Ric Flair comes out for the big Texas Tornado tag match, and he gets a pretty decent reaction from the crowd, but zero fucking acknowledgement from the announcers, who still can't stop talking about the riders. Eric Bischoff always worked with the established stars of WCW. Vince Russo came in in September of last year and said, we're going to do it a different way. So the biggest fireworks in WCW over the next week could not be in the ring. It could be behind the closed door. Luger comes out uh, for his total package pose down, but Sting and Vampiro jump him from behind. Now, this is a Texas uh, tornado match, which means falls count anywhere, and there is no DQ. Sting and Luger leave the ring and brawl towards the hotel pool, a spot that I'm sure the live crowd loved because there was no screen here for them to see what was happening. Luger sets Sting up for a pile driver on the concrete, but Sting reverses and backdrops Luger into the pool. Luger gets out of the pool, grabs a waiter's tray, and hits Sting with it. Luger then shoves that waiter into the pool. In the ring, Sting and Vamp presumably continue to wrestle. Sting and Luger uh, then work towards the bar, and Liz throws a tray of dip at Sting. Luger attempts to shove Sting's face into a different bowl of salsa, but Sting blocks it and puts the salsa all over Luger's face. Back in the ring, Flair has Vamp in a figure four, but we quickly cut back to Sting and Luger, who are now on the beach. Luger and Sting fight into the ocean, where Luger takes a pile driver into the water. Sting gets the pin, or at least that's what it sounded like, because there was no fucking light on the camera and I couldn't see a thing. In the ring, Flair rolls out of the ring, and Vampiro raises his hands in victory, which probably confused the live crowd because they had no idea what had just happened <laughs> on the beach. So yeah, there are some interesting comedy spots here. My 
my main issue is like I feel little things like this are fine to do with your lower card comedy figures. I mean, that's all the hardcore division was in WWE. But when you're doing stuff like this with main eventers, like they're throwing salsa on each other, like, no, these are the guys we got to take seriously. And you can save salsa spots for, you know, for the Chavos and things that are lower down on the card. But your main eventers why, here, why, like... Why, wait, 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 hold on. Flag on the play, Brian. Oh. Why, we, why does Chavo have to be the guy in the salsa spot? Because I just randomly named a dude from, from that... <laughs> I just okay. Here, here. Is this better? Uh, you could have thrown sour cream on uh, on Chris Candino. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> He's as white as you're gonna get. Uh, I again, just deep, deep sadness. Uh, you four of the bet, like four of the biggest names in wrestling. Vampiro too. I mean, he was a giant star in Mexico. I just wanted them to keep. I just wanted them to stay on Flair versus Vampiro. I yeah. was actually super interested in watching that match, but we kept wa- then they kept cutting to their two franchise, you know, WCW's two most, you know, homegrown stars, Sting and Luger, and they're wrestling on the beach and they're throwing refried beans at each other and pile driving each other in the ocean and it was just it was just sad and and the, I'm looking at Luger and he's covered in guac and refried beans and salsa and i'm like two years from now you're gonna be paralyzed and elizabeth is gonna like die in your apartment like it's just it's just it was like step one in 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 such a sad period of uh of like a five-year arc for for that guy i just sadness abounded i don't mean to bring the podcast down but i felt i just felt immense i felt bad for flair who was probably battling like all he's on his like fourth divorce for, he left WWE for no good reason to go back to WCW. Uh, he still looks like a million bucks, but he's just being wasted. He's got like the boot of all of the all of management on his throat, like making him do all this ridiculous stuff. No fanfare for the greatest of all time. And they have a baby faced vampiro, which makes no sense. So just ever I don't know. The whole thing has me flabbergasted. Yeah, I think this had the potential to be something really special if you just made it a regular match. Agree. 100%. Because like like Sting and Vampiro, that's a unique combination. Having Vampiro in there with these main event guys really elevates him. But to do the stuff where, you know, it's this Texas Tornado match and we can brawl all over the, the compound. Like, I like that idea, but not with these guys. Like, I, I think there should have been a place on the show where somebody gets backdropped into the pool and, and somebody gets suplexed or, or pile-driven into the ocean. Like, those are cool ways to use the environment, but it was the wrong match to kind of use those elements with. Because I, I, I do think, like, this could have been a really big match to elevate Vampiro to that next level, and, and unfortunately, I think they wasted the opportunity. But again, it's just presentation. I mean, I was in – I was at WWE when – Cena and Edge wrestled uh, False Count Anywhere, and Cena dumped Edge into the you know the Boston Harbor, mm. and and that was an amazing spot that Raw ended on because it was presented correctly. It was presented as a it was a really good wrestling match that turned into a brawl all over the arena that led them outside and over to you know he dumped them over a bridge. So, I mean. It's all it, again. It's all about presentation, and I don't. I just think the the powers that be at WCW at the time there was no quality control. There was no, there was nobody saying no. Every idea was a good idea, and every idea was. It seemed like every idea that was put on the table was put into motion, and they were just 
you know, sm- they were mashing 15 ideas into one segment. Booker gives his thoughts on Russo and Bischoff. He just wants them to do their jobs and not make him kiss their asses. Uh, this was the first of several talent interviews throughout the night of people giving their thoughts on Russo and Bischoff coming in to write the show. Because that's what I want on every TV show is <laughs> the, the actors out of character talking about the, the writers of the television program. Interesting, though, that Booker would be the first interviewed here because, correct me if I'm wrong, Nate, but I think Booker is maybe the only person who would end up benefiting from Russo coming back. Oof. You, I mean, are, are we counting David Arquette? Well, David Arquette was not on this show, so he was referenced by, by DDP in the opening segment. But yeah, I think, yeah, Booker, you know, and we'll talk about it in, in the weeks and months to come, but I think Booker, for better or for worse, does come out on top or at least a little bit better than he was right now uh, after the transition. Yeah, yeah, I think that... Um... Because he gets the title, but that's that's about it. I mean, he's he is going to get the tea back though. He gets the tea back in two weeks. And we and we and we meet his wife, who I don't think we've met up to this point. <laughs> we also meet GI Bro eventually well, as well. We met her as Paisley, but we didn't know. Well, that's oh, well, not well, his well, wife yeah. at the time. Yeah, he's not well, married yeah, to her it's, yet. It's very. Uh, this is very like much like the Flash. Like we've got all these alternate timelines and uh, the, the, these paradoxes in the in the, uh, in the time stream, but yeah, so we've, we've got Booker's future wife, but soon we will be introduced to Booker's current wife, uh, and it's 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 all glorious. WCW in two thousand was basically written by J.J. Abrams, is what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> mean Gene interviews Terry <laughs> Funk, who will be wrestling Hugh Morris tonight. Gene starts the interview by reminiscing with Funk over all the times they've come to spring break to meet college chicks. Oh my they God. uh. They really need to just give Gene the night off on this one. Uh, Funk says he'll take care of Hugh Morris. Enough about that. They then go back to talking about uh, their social lives. Gene quickly wraps things up by saying that he and Funk need to throw one back after the show. Tony pipes in by saying that Gene has never had just one. (laughs) A great alcoholism joke to wrap up this meaningless interview with Terry Funk. Yeah, and just sadness, just... Uh, Terry Funk collecting a paycheck like has no business being on the roster at this point and just being mis. And if he is on the roster, he's just being sorely misused. And he's not even like cutting the kind of old, like middle-aged and crazy Terry Funk that he was doing uh, when he got brought in at the beginning of 2000. His arms draped over Gene. They're just two old dudes hanging out. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go have a match with this Hugh Morris guy and then we're going to go drink afterwards. And like, that's, Terry Funk could not have given. This was the, maybe the least impassioned Terry Funk promo. Castrated Terry Funk. Yeah, at least he wasn't carrying around a raw chicken, so we got that going <laughs> for us, which is nice. Our next bout is Ming and Laparka. Uh, Ming is out in the ring waiting for Laparka, and Laparka comes out. Uh, actually, gets a pretty decent pop coming out. This is Texas, and he has a pretty uh, legendary lucha. Uh, past in the area. However, rather than playing up on this, he cuts another Phantom Voice promo. Hey, Jungle Jim! What? I'm gonna give you one chance to step off before I knock the kinks out of that Angela Davis looking natural you got going. Uh-oh. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. Nate, any thoughts on this? Uh, this... I, I don't know who thought this was a good idea. Like, the the voice... Uh, doing the voiceovers with LaParka because not only are they offensive, but I don't think they've added any intrigue to the character. And 
furthermore, like there's no there's no continuation of the mystery when he's not in the ring. Like we don't see LaParka looking around backstage. We never see LaParka like asking people what happened with my voice. Like it's always these isolated segments where LaParka's in the ring and then somebody says something offensive uh, in his name. Now, was this before they did WWE did this with um with Takamichi Noku? Uh maybe after. I think it might have been after, actually. Yeah. yeah. So they clearly got the idea from WWE. Well, I think it might have been Ed Ferrara both times doing it. Like it might have been his idea just in two different companies. Right. So he just thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> These guys don't speak English. Now, thankfully, Ming puts an end to this as Madden says that Ming reminds him of an angry Lionel Richie. Ming quickly locks on the Tongan death grip. Time out, time out. Another, yeah. another flag on the play. Yep. <laughs> let's, let's deconstruct this statement. Ming, <laughs> what part of Ming, the, the, the Tongan uh, powerhouse, would remind Mark Madden of Lionel Richie besides the complexion? Because I, I don't see a correlation between the guy that uh, has got the Tongan death grip and the guy that sang Dancing on the Ceiling and All Night Long. Because Lionel Richie doesn't even really have, like, a big crazy afro. Was that just the first, like, black person that came to Mark Madden's mind? <laughs> He's like, well, a- Angela Davis is taken, so uh, let's go with uh, Lionel Richie, yeah. <laughs> it's like, he reminds me of an angry Jay Biggs. That guy's bald. We are just naming <laughs> black people, Mark Madden. Oh, <laughs> uh, Mark Madden. Well, uh, after the match, or Ming quickly locks in the Tongan death grip for the win. After the match... Tank Abbott comes to ringside. Uh, before, these these two have been having a, a, a few teasing for a while. Rather than laying hands on each other, though, Fit Finley then runs in and attacks Tank, and those two are then uh, separated by security. So uh, well, I guess we're not going to get a blow-off to Ming versus Tank here, Nate. No, but I, I did appreciate, you know, Finley part aside, I did appreciate that they kept it going because after I kind of recovered from the Lionel Richie reference from Mark Madden, my immediate thought was, did they drop the Tank Abbott feud? And so I was glad to see uh, Tank show up at the end of the match. I just wish they would have left Finley out of it uh, because he does not really make sense with what they're trying to go forward with. But, uh, yeah, at least uh, at least uh, they, they get a point for continuity. It was years before he would introduce us all to the shillelagh. <laughs> we are treated to kid cam footage from earlier in the day. Mr. Steal Your Girl, Buff Bagwell, is caught hitting on the NWO biddies after Steiner leaves. Uh, that same segment we saw earlier, this is the second half of it. Steiner sees the footage in the NWO locker room and flips out. Okay. Right. So, let's go to the room. We'll talk about it. Okay. Good, good. It's cool. Are you going to try it? Yeah, we will. Let's do it. Uh-oh. Look at the high tops. Nice high tops, huh? What an asshole. Jeez. Jeff, I'm not waiting for the match. I'm going. No, 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 Scotty. Oh, 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 just speaking about Fit Finley, we now get an interview with him giving his thoughts on Russo and Bischoff. Fit says that WCW is having a hard time, but that these two are the two that can turn it around. Our next match is Hugh Morris and Terry Funk. Uh, before this match with Funk, uh, Morris cuts a promo insinuating that Terry Funk fucks chickens? Why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> did you ever see what Terry Funk does to a chicken? <laughs> That, that's what I took from this why the chicken crossed the road joke. Was, was there a different meaning to what he was implying? Um, I don't think so, but I'm just glad somebody remembered the, the raw chicken because this, this to me is something that should never be forgotten when you talk about Terry Funk from WCW in the year 2000. Like this dude runs around with raw chickens and it's, uh, it, it should be uh, pointed out. 
Well, enough of this match. Uh, Tony has more breaking news to bring us. The news is that next week's Nitro will be a best-of recap show instead of a live episode. Tony then tells us that the production truck wants him to concentrate on the match, but that he just can't do that right now. They're breaking the fourth wall, man. (laughs) It's explained that Russo and Bischoff are taking two weeks to sort things out before debuting their new Nitro on April 10th. Morris goes for a top rope elbow and misses. Funk and Hugh then brawl uh, off the stage and into the sand. Funk takes a powerbomb into the sand. Both men then get back in the ring, so Tony goes back to promoting the April 10th Nitro. Hugh and Terry end up back on the floor, where Morris takes an unprotected chair shot to the head. Dustin Rhodes then comes out to attack Funk, but Funk attacks him with the chair as well. Morris brings Funk into the ring, hits a no-laughing-matter moonsault off the top. Morris then goes for a pin, but Dustin Rhodes attacks Morris with a chair for no fucking reason. The ref then calls a DQ, so Funk using a chair on the floor didn't constitute didn't constitute a DQ, but this did. Rhodes then lays out everyone with chair shots, including the referee. Funk recovers. Chair shot to the head. Yeah, unprotected. Chair shot the head on the ref. Funk recovers and brawls to the back with Dustin. Back in the ring, Morris lands a moonsault on the referee to end this utterly confusing segment. <laughs> Again, we just took this one step too far. Dude, if you were just giving me Terry Funk versus Dustin Rhodes in like the, you know, the the second generation of Rhodes Funk, I'm in. I'm all in, 100%. <laughs> but Hugh Morris is there. There's chair shots. Dustin Rhodes is wearing like leather chaps and and bolo ties like it's just the again its presentation is just so convoluted yeah that's what i was gonna say you you say you want that andrew but as somebody who has received that for the past few weeks i don't i don't know if you really <laughs> want this funk rose feud but i will say like this should have been the match in my opinion where they did all the stuff that they did during the uh sting Flair, uh, Luger, Vampiro exactly. tag match. Like, this could have been the one where, you know, you brawl around the pool 100%. and you, you fight at the bar. That's a great call. 100%. I have no problem seeing Terry Funk covered in refried beans. You know, you know what just occurred to me? And I, I'm, I guess this is giving them some credit. I guarantee you the reason why that was a tornado tag match is because they realized that they couldn't just have the ring empty for five straight minutes. They had to have two... They had to create a reason why two people were wrestling... That mm. didn't matter. That 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 had to be it. That had to one hundred percent be why that was a tag a tornado tag match, and they didn't just do this going out uh, uh, onto the beach. Either way, it's <laughs> just a misuse of. I mean, the the thing with WCW is they have so much talent, so much talent, and it's all just being. It, it's really most of it is being misused. Mean Gene interviews Hulk Hogan, something he hasn't done in at least 20 minutes. Hogan then cuts the exact same promo that he did earlier in the show. Hogan promises to sick hammerhead sharks on the wall if he tries to take a boat to China. What was the point of any of this? Why did we, we've already established this match is happening. Why do we need more Hulk Hogan on this show? (laughs) Why did we need, uh, I would ask the question, why do we need any Hulk Hogan on this show? (laughs) Because, as you already mentioned, like, yes, he's a star, but he's not getting the reactions he, he once garnered. Like, this this Sid program, like, I'm already over this Sid's Sid feud. Sid's the show. Yeah. Like, well, like why, why are we even doing, like, Sid's got this half a million dollar bounty, which I do not believe you put that money up, Mr. Udy. Uh, like, why, why are we even doing this? I think the, the time we spent with Hulk Hogan probably could have been 
better served with uh, some actual in-ring action. Yeah, there's no way Sid Udy had $500,000 in the year 2000. <laughs> A. B, I feel like Hulk Hogan watched back his promo from middle of the show and said, you know what, I forgot a pretty sweet Hammerhead Sharks line. Let's, <laughs> let's build another promo with me and Gene into the, the last third of the show. And they, they acquiesced to, to Hogan's uh, request. Oh, no. <laughs> Steiner and Jarrett then come to the ring over footage of their match from last week. Steiner gets on the mic and promises to fuck all of the women in the crowd. Jared allows the women to stay at ringside tonight because the crowd deserves some eye candy. Backstage, we find Kurt Henning telling Buff Bagwell to get serious because Steiner is pissed at him. Buff then says that he can't help it if women are always wet around him. Subtlety. The artist formerly known as Prince Ikea is then asked for his thoughts on Bischoff and Russo returning. Yes. The smartest man on the show, the artist says that the two of them will run the place into the ground and that WCW will be over for everybody. Prince quickly reveals, though, this is just a rib, and then he puts over Bischoff and Russo. (laughs) This sounded like a guy who fully understood that he was getting the biggest push of his career without those guys being there, and is maybe a little afraid of what the new management will bring for him. Yeah. I I know they tried to play it off as a joke, but in my mind, in my head canon, Prince I.K. was, was keeping it 100. Uh, as, as the kids would say, but I, I think that you know he don't want to lose his job, man. You can't buy those wonderful shirts if you don't have employment. So I think he he covered it up with a joke. And as we know, Brian, there's there's always a little kernel of truth in, in every joke. So yeah. I think uh, Iakea was a prophet. He he was letting us know what was going to happen. He's a smart man. He's living up to his gimmick. Smartest man, smartest man at WCW. He saw that the company was going down the toilet. The NWO is still in the ring as Buff and Henning make their entrances. Henning is double teamed by the NWO while Buff takes his sweet time doing his full entrance. Bagwell eventually gets in the ring and helps Henning clear the ring. The bell sounds with Jeff and Buff starting things off. As is the standard of the night, the match is just a screensaver for more Bischoff and Russo talk. Um, All four guys are in the ring. Buff hits Jarrett with a Buff blockbuster, but the NWO girls distract Buff, who gets clotheslined out of the ring by Steiner. Outside, the biddies tend to bag well. You know, these girls are just thirsty for the Buff Daddy. Henning hooks Steiner for the Henning Plex, but Jarrett hits him with a guitar. This allows Scott to lock in the Skyner recliner for the win. As crazy as it sounds, this was maybe the cleanest match on the entire show. Yeah, ironically, cleanest match on the show, but made me feel most sad to see Kurt Hennig, like, (laughs) just walking down the aisle in, like, a dirty singlet, slightly overweight. Like, again, presentation, when every single time he appeared on WWF and WWE air, he looked like a million dollars. He was perfect. Not a hair was out of place. His singlet, singlet was immaculate. WCW, it's like it's, it's got sweat stains, and uh, he looks bloated, and his work. It was just uh, I was. It made me. Um, it really made me upset to sort of see Kurt Hennig uh, during these days. But again, the match was for for those standards pretty pretty good. Yeah, and Kurt Hennig at this point is kind of a guy, Brian, that I think. Since his kind of re-debut in Minnesota, like I think that was the high point because the, the crowd was into it. We we got a pretty decent match by uh, Kurt Henning, 2000 standards. And then ever since then, with all the Hogan stuff and the Flair stuff, it, it's felt like he's lost a lot of momentum. And then with this match, I don't know why these guys are teaming. I don't know why they're friends. Uh, I don't know why Kurt Henning 
who seems to be an upstanding man, would, would team up with Mr. Steel, your girl, Buff Bagwell. But here we are. We've, we've got a match that is not bad, uh, but it, it's certainly not what it could be given the, the talent in the ring. Big Vito then gives his Russo thoughts. Vito thinks it's going to get Nitro back on track and being first in the ratings. Now, Andrew, I know that you're tight. Uh, you, you put over uh, Vito before, but uh, what do you have to say about his, uh, his foresight here? Look, man, he's the toughest guy to ever wear a dress. There's <laughs> not much else you can say. <laughs> are you going to say to his face, the toughest, are you going to say to the toughest guy to ever wear a dress, are you going to say to his face that his uh, promo was meaningless and unnecessary? <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not going to do that. <laughs> the Walter makes his way down for the main event over more fucking Russo talk from the announcers. You know, I, I'm beginning to think that Vince Russo actually came back two weeks early and is already booking the show. Hogan makes his entrance, which means, guys, it is time for the Hogan Bump Challenge. Now, Andrew, what this is is that for every Hulk Hogan match, beforehand we take a wager. We see how many bumps each of us thinks Hulk Hogan will actually manage to do during a pro wrestling match. Here we are. Mm. He's facing off against a big monster. You are our guest. So what do you think? How many bumps do you think Hulk Hogan took in this match? He's American made. Um, let's see. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna put the over under at uh, three. Okay. Mm. You think he takes three, Nate? What do you think? It's very ambitious. I, I think that that might be a bit of a rookie mistake here in the Hogan Bump Challenge. <laughs> uh, I, knowing what uh, what we've seen from Hogan in, in past matches on the show, Brian, I'm gonna go with Hogan takes one bump. And, and I'll round it out. I'll be in that sweet spot right between the two of you. I think, too. You know, he's facing a big guy. He's got to put him over. Uh, he's he's got to make the big guy look credible so that his comeback has some oomph to it. So here we go. Let's get things started. Uh, the wall gets the early advantage, getting Hogan to the mat. But Hogan falls face forward and onto his knees to get there. So no no bumps just yet. This is just all weak-ass clotheslines and punches. Uh, the wall throws Hogan to the floor, where Hulkster takes some chair shots to the back. Again, doesn't actually do a back bump. He's, he's falling forward on all this stuff. The wall sets up a table. This allows Hogan to get the chair and attack the wall relentlessly, almost to a heel level. Back in the ring, the wall recovers and chokeslams Hogan for the first bump of the match. So, Nate, you are on the board. Hogan, of course, though, no-sells this. Jumps right back to his feet. He hulks up and lands a big boot. Now it's the Wall's turn to no-sell. The Wall forces Hogan into the corner, which brings out Vampiro for no apparent fucking reason. There wasn't anything unfair going. It's just, it's just a match, so the babyface runs in. Vamp then attacks the Wall, and a DQ is called. Tony says the DQ doesn't matter because this wasn't a match to begin with. What the, what the fuck, Tony? Uh, the match then ends, the match and the show ends with Hogan and Vampiro putting the wall through a table at ringside. So, Nate, you are our winner. Hogan managed to only take one bump in this six-minute match, so good on him. Uh, but, yeah, a really uh, nothing end that, if nothing else, we know how terrible things are going to get under Russo and Bischoff. But if I had been a fan watching the year 2000, I would have been begging for any sort of difference because... It's the year 2000, and this is how we're going off the air with Vampiro making himself look like a fucking idiot causing a DQ. And, you know, but still, it's, it's Hot Dog Hogan getting all the credit. I can't believe this is how uh, WCW decided to enter the millennium. <laughs> uh, no, I. All right. Uh, I. Uh, it's amazing to think that like, Hogan's the one who ended up with, like, had to have two hip surgeries, a million back surgeries. 
where like he had, he didn't take he took one I don't know how many bumps he took in the last twenty years. He always uh, talks, he always talks about sort of you know the leg drop did him in because he was landing on his butt all those years. But I mean his it's amazing. There's just guys who were taking gigantic high spots their whole career, and they're in much better condition than Hogan is uh, now in his old age. That's the crazy thing that Hogan thought avoiding back bumps was the thing that would give him longevity while fucking up his hips multiple times, mm. <laughs> like every single match. It's, it's crazy where, uh, where his thought process was. Uh, yeah, again, I can't support the wall because he wrestles. He's like, they were like, what, what, what gear do we want to put him in? They're like, hey, anybody have Mr. Hughes's number? Can we borrow his old gear? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I do love that. The, yeah, the wall is kind of the the uh, the salt of the salt and pepper combination with Mr. Hughes, who you know we, we might as well have brought him back on this show as a, as a big guy for Hogan to triumph and valiantly over. Uh, I also appreciated that the ratio between Hogan promos and Hogan bumps was uh, in the proper uh, <laughs> alignment this week. Three Hogan promos, one bump, <laughs> as it should be. Uh, but yeah, this is. Like, we already talked about kind of the reaction Hogan got from this crowd. And it's not just this crowd. Like, he was getting mixed reactions in a lot of places uh, that we've seen during this latest Hogan run. And so, like, why would you make – why would you want to make this guy kind of your your top baby face or, or the guy that is in the main event and the guy we closed the show with? Because he's not going to give you a great match in ring. But even more than that, like the character I don't think is connecting with the people at this point, particularly this liquored up crowd here in, in Texas. Like they, they didn't come here to see Hulk Hogan. The fans clearly wanted black and white NWL Hogan. That, yep. sh- that shit was, you know, the coolest thing in the late 90s. And here we are. He's trying to relive the red and yellow years. And it's it's just it's bad timing for, for the year 2000. I mean, obviously later he would come back to WWE in the red and yellow and it was, it would be presented correctly in a nostalgic light and not sort of in a, in a major wrestling role. And, uh, it worked out pretty well for him then, but it's, I think it's too early at this point, uh, to try to bring back the red and yellow. And we see the dividends of that, you know, with the lackluster audience, um, reaction. I also found it weird that, the whole most of the show they're teasing this this bounty from uh Sid Vicious and we don't see him the entire show and nothing about that story is paid off with this main event match at the end of the two hours. Yeah, there's it's so weird because we obviously have, you know, hindsight twenty twenty. We 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 know where these things are going, and it's weird because Sid turned heel for five minutes on the last Nitro. He's not seen on this episode at all. When they do the reboot, he's back to being a babyface. So there was never any... uh, That was never paid off. And you just complained about how the red and yellow isn't being done properly here. If I'm not mistaken, this is also the last time we'll see the red and yellow because after the reboot... We just get the the fuck you new blood shoot uh, Terry Bollea version of Hulk Hogan. So this was the last time. Thankfully, a lot of things we're complaining about. This is the last time that we're seeing it. And who knows, Nate? Maybe... A month or two from now, we're going to be begging for them to come back. But for now, we can close the book. We can end this era of the Calvin Selvin booking period um, because we are putting it into this episode, which means we're going to do our uh, silver lining segment. Now, Andrew, this is where we have to pick one thing from this episode, completely unqualified, unabashedly, we can say was a positive top to bottom. So, Andrew, for you, what was your silver lining? 
it was that WWE. It was that WWE SmackDown 2006 was um, the the current the, the, the um, it was sort of the genesis of ve- very many cool storylines to come six years later on SmackDown. <laughs> so <laughs> the seeds of three really uh, influential talent on uh, SmackDown during uh, the time that I thankfully got to work for the company were planted uh, in WCW in the year 2000. So, so let me get this straight. Your favorite thing about this episode of Nitro in the year 2000 was the writing you would do six years later. <laughs> yes, it was, that I, it was. It was getting to see uh, these in, impressive talents, Jamie Noble, Big Vito, and Jimmy Yang Wang, who were so integral to my uh, career in professional wrestling. And Nate, how about you? What's your silver lining? Uh, I think my silver lining would be the setting overall. Like I, I, I believe that while this show was a mixed bag and there was way too much insider talk and, and the, the matches that we did get weren't executed the best, I think just having the match at this location, which is something that we've said time and time again, you know, something that the WWE was very reluctant to do, you know, in terms of stepping out of that comfort zone and doing a shoot like this, it, it was cool. It was always something that I look forward to in WCW, like when they'd go and do a show, whether it was here or whether they would do the uh, the Road Wild slash Hog Wild show from Sturgis. Like, it, it it didn't work financially for the company, but yeah. I think just from a from a television standpoint, like, it was always cool to see them go to different locations. So that that's my silver lining this week. I'll say another silver lining is that that, that I found out that that dude got paid $400,000. <laughs> that's amazing. Good for him. And he, and he didn't even have to cash in the bounty to get that. Nope. He just, I, uh, unfortunately, he spent it all on camouflage pants, Tri- like quadruple XL camouflage pants. <laughs> Uh, Nate, I actually, I got to echo you on my silver lining. Uh, my favorite thing about this episode was definitely the the location, the look of it, being outside. I've, I always love the spring break nitros. I've said it time and again, I think WWE should try to do something similar, uh, doing stuff for maybe uh, South by Southwest when that's going there. Trying to do that because we can joke all, all day about how stupid it was that they didn't – like this was free. People just walked up and, and saw it. You can do a show outside and charge charge money for it, like – that that's how music festivals make their money. <laughs> like, well, there's a way to do a show outside without an arena and still make money. I mean, one of the worst WrestleManias of all time, WrestleMania Nine, takes place in a parking lot. Like, there's a way to do an outside show. We are and, talking about making WrestleMania weekend into a festival, like a music festival. Right. So we might see that uh, come to fruition. I would love it. I mean, I think that uh, as one of my biggest issues with current Raw. Even the, I mean, the three hours and all the booking problems I have, one of the biggest problems is that each episode just looks and feels exactly the same. There's no reason of, like, why this sh- should be a little different. Whereas this episode, um, even though I kind of wish, Nate, that it was kind of weird that we got to this episode and I realized they had promoted nothing. Like, four weeks they've had Ricky Rackman, but they actually haven't promoted any match. Like, wouldn't it be great right. if we actually had set up, like, we're going to do Sid defending the title against somebody and we maybe had built it in a weird way. Maybe, but what if they had actually saved that Tank Abbott match for here and they'd like spent, you know, a couple of weeks promoting it. But it was weird that by the time we actually got here, the only thing they'd promoted was we're going to be by a pool. But even with that being said, I appreciated that look and that feel being different. Again, like I think that had they known what, what was going to go down, like they, 
I think there's a happy medium between just doing a throwaway show and having a show that's actually a conclusion, actually kind of like that mid-season finale. So I, I do think having that Tank Sid match being built up for an additional three or four weeks and, and have this be the finale, that, that would have been better than what we got tonight. You know, maybe extending the Harlem Heat 2000 thing and having a big blow-off match between Booker and Stevie on this show. You know, that could have been a good thing to hold here. Maybe do something more with Sting than having him fight in the ocean. Uh, like, there's there's things they could have done, but that obviously wasn't a priority here. Like, the priority mm-hmm. was we've got to promote Bischoff and Russo and can they get along? And what should have been maybe one or two segments addressing that ended up becoming the whole show. And so, uh, like, I think there was a big opportunity here, and unfortunately they wasted it, which, uh, spoiler alert, might become a theme for this program. <laughs> And uh, Andrew, I think it's fair to say that your your overall reaction, uh, you stated it several times, was was sadness. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it, sadness, and just like man, I wish I somehow could go back in time and be a Turner executive in any department and be like, hey, uh, here's a PowerPoint presentation. How about you put me in charge? Yep. Like that would have <laughs> been. I feel like I was not a good. Uh, Booker and I wasn't very successful on the WWE writing team, but I feel like with that roster, I could have given you a better two hours than they they gave us. Now, we we obviously Andrew, we want to thank you for enduring this and feeling this sadness on on uh, for, for the sake of, of of discussing it. But the last thing I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for here before uh before we say goodbye is you're getting off here, you're jumping off the train, but Nate and I are gonna continue down this path. Um. What advice do you have for us as, as we continue with this experiment? Uh, what, what do you think you've learned that you could maybe impart upon us uh, to, to survive the? Because uh, we still have forty nine or more of these, or thirty nine more of these. Uh, I would say look to the future. Uh, look, watch these episodes with an eye towards the future, uh, because if you look towards the past, most times that's sort of what made me the most sad was uh, you know a lot of what these guys accomplished in the past and how they were being used in the present. But if you look towards the future, like I said in my silver lining, there are some cool things that came out of uh, – there are some cool, uh, really fundamental talents that came out of the, 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 uh, the dumpster fire that was WCW. I mean we, a lot of people who were very important to the rise of current wrestling – uh, came out of this period of time. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, and we mentioned it off the top, but let, let's actually discuss it here. You have your own podcast and as well an, an MTV show. Uh, what, what's going on with those? Uh, the podcast is called Sorry I've Been So Busy. You can find it on iTunes. I co-host it with uh, Matt Goldich, a very funny comedian and writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. And we talk to very busy people about what they are busy doing or not so busy people about what they're lying about busy about what they're be what they're so busy uh, doing because as we know everybody uh, always is just way too busy that's sort of uh, how we came about this podcast but we talked to really uh, successful comedians and writers and TV producers and chefs and uh, all kinds of really fun uh, busy people so uh, I recommend it it's a fun podcast and uh, the show is called Vidiots. It is being made for MTV International, which means it will air in 16 international markets. And it's basically 
human Beavis and Butthead meets Mystery Science 3000. So it's uh, pairs of comedians in different living room setups watching current, uh, semi-new, new, newish, and uh, classic music videos and cracking wise. So it's a lot of like guy code-ish, guy and girl code-ish comedians watching uh, music videos and reacting to those. And uh, it's, I, I mean, I'm super biased, but it's really, really funny. And I'm hoping to be able to share links uh, to somewhere internationally where people will be able to watch this. And I'm also hoping that it ends up on domestic MTV, which uh, we are working on. So uh, look out for MTV Vidiots, but it's a really fun show. And it's been a fun year for me with the podcast and the TV show. And I thank you guys. This has been, even though I, I came away feeling sad, uh, it was a fun sadness because it's a wrestling sadness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know I'm certainly uh, I enjoy the podcast. I'm looking forward to being able to see the uh, the show when it when it hopefully does come stateside here. Um, but yeah, you, well, you mentioned uh, you might share some links uh, uh, to wrap it all up. What's uh, where can people find you uh, socially and whatnot? Uh, on Twitter at Ange Gold A N G E G O L D, and uh, yeah, mo- I, I tweet about wrestling a lot. And if it's not wrestling, it's usually joke related or self promotionally related. So follow me on Twitter at Ange Gold. Well, thank you again, uh, Andrew and uh, Nate. For you and I, we're going to be back. Uh, you know, before you, before you know it, and rather than jumping straight to the Russo Bischoff Nitro, we're actually going to talk about that. That filler episode, uh, so to say, that recap episode of Nitro, uh, we're going to discuss that one. And I think, uh, Nate, I'm actually looking forward to that because uh, it's going to allow us a, a fun episode to just look back at some of the, the highlights of Nitro. I, I, wa- I didn't know we would get to do that on, on, on Keep It 2000. Yeah, I, I like it because, you know, we are getting ready to embark into maybe the most controversial or arduous part of our journey here. Uh, and so it's good to take a look back and, and for the listeners that only know about Monday Nitro through this podcast or through maybe some of the WWE retrospectives, like it'll be good to look back at the greatest moments of Nitro because there was a reason that this show was so revolutionary and a reason that it kind of forced the WWF and now the WWE to change some things because they were a legitimate, uh, Breath of fresh air in, in in wrestling television. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And of course, keep an eye on all of our social channels. Stay subscribed on uh stay subscribed to Live Audio Wrestling on iTunes to get that as soon as it comes out. I am on Twitter at Brian Maxman and all the other different social places you can type that into and you know, invade my privacy. Uh but until then, Nate Gonna ta- pass it over to you because you've got that weird Twitter handle that I don't even attempt. Plus, it's time for you to give the people the good word uh, until we come back in another, uh, you know, two weeks or so. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at in the number eight m o z a i k at Nate Mosaic. Uh, find out about all of my various uh, podcast projects and uh, talk politics, talk wrestling, talk sports. Uh, who knows? Maybe if you want to talk about the greatness of Man Cow Muller, we can <laughs> do that there on the interwebs. But uh, I want to thank you guys and girls for downloading the show and listening once again. It's it's always a uh, pleasure to talk to you folks up here from the Satellite of Hate. Uh, shout out to Andrew again for joining us this week. And uh, Andrew mentioned earlier that this show happened in the millennium. <laughs> and so the words of wisdom I want to leave everybody with as we leave South Padre in Texas, as we go from the West back to the East, is uh, the wise, wise words of one, William Smith. Now, once upon a time in the West, a madman lost his damn mind 
in the West. He was loveless, giving up on a dime, nothing less. Now, I must put his behind to the test. So if you have a riff and people want to bust, break out before you get bum-rushed in the wild, wild West.